what to you does it mean to be a woman? I finally feel comfortable in my own body. I mean, I didn't feel, I think I started feeling that there was a mismatch between what my gender was and my body as early as age seven. And I grew up a very unhappy male and did a lot of drinking and drugging and a lot of suicidal ideation. Um, and finally, I had to come to terms of who I was. And since then, that comfort, once I got comfort in my own body, I found I could do a lot of different things. I could actually become productive. I could contribute to, you know, uh, uh, my field of public health. And um, there's a, there was a, just a really good psychological fit, kind of an ease for me. I mean, most of my friends are cisgender women because, I mean, I like the way we talk and think and share. And it's, you know, almost always not competitive. And there's a lot of care into our conversations. And welcome to the fourth episode of this activist season of Life is for the Living. I'm your host, Rebecca Richmond. In this episode, we are learning about Jessica Xavier, trans woman and data scientist. And while activist and data scientist may not naturally match up in many people's minds, Jessica is a strong believer in using data to find out what the actual needs of a community are therefore making her activism more effective. But first, let's talk about her journey to accepting her transness. I grew up in a, uh, a government family. Both my parents worked for the federal government. I wasn't particularly happy because I had this kind of gender incongruence kind of feeding into my consciousness and and so and it was tough because i wasn't like other boys and um you know um i did incur a fair amount of homophobic hazing people thought i was gay because i wasn't always engaged in traditional masculine behaviors and um, eventually i escaped into music played in a lot of bands and that was fun, and it kind of distracted me, feeling unhappy all the time. What kind of music? Uh, pretty much everything. Let's see, I, I began playing in kind of like a, uh, oh, they're cover bands, I guess. Uh, a traditional walk and, rock and roll, country, western. Uh, I even played in a bluegrass band for a while, which is hard to believe. And then I got into a jazz fusion band and then some original or alternative rock bands and got to work with some exceptional songwriters and then um, started writing my own songs. So when I came out in the early 1990s, we had lots of shared stories of trans women struggling to access gender affirming care the past, transition, and live normal lives. But 
too many of us couldn't find providers willing to treat us. There was no internet or social media back then. And many of those providers who were willing to treat us were sexist, ill-trained, and incompetent to do so. This was especially true for trans people of color, where the full fury of transphobic stigma manifested in murder, violence, HIV, discrimination, homelessness, and multiple barriers to access to any kind of health care. The Black and Latina trans women that I knew in the 1990s were living lives straight out of Thomas Hobbes, a famous British philosopher who coined the four-word nasty, poor, brutish, and short. But as trans people emerged in significant numbers in the 90s, there was no data to demonstrate this. The social stigma of transgenderism prevented inclusive data collection in federal and state surveys, even in HIV epidemiology. So we had to do this ourselves. And this is how transfeminism informed my career of conducting community-based participatory research or CBPR oriented needs assessment surveys of urban trans populations. One part of being trans is modifying your voice so that people hear you as your correct gender. I took voice lessons for a while to try to get up into the alto range and occasionally hit that. Um, And I learned early on, you know, that a lot of trans women are really, I don't know, uh, we develop complexes about our speaking voices. Many of us take speech therapy to get our voices up. And um, and so it's like to, to talk to somebody like, you know, the bank or a credit card company or, you know, ordering something through the telephone. It can be a very, you know, nerving, unnerving experience for us. So I remember, um, I think it was Leslie Feinberg, who's very famous a uh, trans advocate who had one foot in the lesbian community and one foot in the trans community brought the two together more so than anybody else in the 90s. And Les said famously that we should we should speak in our own voices. And I hear that. And I am I'm not really, you know, ashamed of my voice. I think I sound like it's a perfectly fine gay male voice. Thank you. And and that's all right. You know, I mean, it's the best I can do. It's who I am. I couldn't, I can't go back and, you know, I've heard that I've heard some trans women have had vo- vocal surgeries and they sound like Minnie Mouse. And it's, and it's ridiculous. And I'm, you know, I value my voice enough, uh, so that I don't want to compromise that and stuff. And, um, um, I was just hearing this morning, um, there is um, uh, a new video game called Hogwarts Legacy. And anything to do with the Harry Potter these days is controversial because of J.K. Rowling's, you know, transphobic postings and stuff. I find that to be terribly unfortunate because um, she is arguing that, you know, trans women, uh, the existence of trans women erase the existence of cisgender women. And I'm just thinking that I've seen this so often in the identity political wars 
And I, I would contend that the affirmation of one identity should never, ever come at the expense of another. But anyway, they have a new character in this Hogwarts legacy video game. Uh, her name is, uh, Sonona. And, and I looked at her and she's got a very nice appearances, but she's got kind of a voice like me. <laughs> and, and I thought, how cool is this? As someone who came out as transgender in the early 1990s, where there was very little acceptance of it, Jessica is very aware of the existential threats to trans people and the stigma attached to being trans. In my conceptualization, stigma is a principal driver of gender-based oppression. Failure to meet heteronormative gendered expectations is still stigmatized in our culture and often results in various forms of punishment. Although independent cisgender women, gay and lesbian, bisexual people also defy heteronormativity by transcending gender and birth sex, trans people stand out in their defiance and thus can suffer severe punishment for it. Access to gender-affirming care, hormones, and surgeries allows trans people to obtain a passing appearance in their chosen genders and thus escape the harsh realities of trans stigma. And along with physical safety, access to gender-affirming care brings peace to a body previously at odds with one's gender. So trans feminism shares with traditional feminism, a principal goal of bodily autonomy. The parallel between access to reproductive choice and access to gender-affirming care should be obvious. With reproductive choice, cisgender women can lead happy, productive lives, and with gender-affirming care, trans and non-binary people can lead happy, normal lives. Bodily autonomy goes directly to our agency and our basic human rights. But of course, there are conservatives who feel compelled to police the bodies of cis women and trans and non-binary people. And as we watch the rights assault against reproductive choice and gender-affirming care, we should keep in mind that Planned Parenthood has quietly become one of the largest providers of trans health care in the nation. So solidarity is essential. We must be allies in this struggle for the right to control our bodies. To combat these threats, Jessica turns to two things, data and transfeminism. I believe in the power of data and data-driven public health policy to remedy gaps in access to care, what we call uh, health disparities. In these times of uh, politically driven barriers to care, not to mention the commodification of healthcare in a capitalist system, the best defense remains evidence, what's real and not what's someone else's prejudice. That data then needs to be captured and analyzed using the lens of transfeminism. So what's transfeminism? There's now quite a bit of scholarly literature about it, 
and many of writers claim a trans feminist perspective by simply mentioning trans people in their analyses or just grafting a traditional second wave feminist lens onto trans experience. And to be clear here, I'm not talking about queer theory, but trans feminism. Where some of this writing focuses solely on the exclusion of trans people from traditional feminist feminism and feminist discourse. Too, too much of it is theoretical and too removed from trans reality. So for me, trans feminism is much more applied. It's, it's always amazed me that so many other trans feminist writers completely miss the most important part of trans feminism, that it must be necessarily grounded in our survival as in life itself. Domestically and globally, there is an epidemic of transphobic violence, and the threat of that violence is acute and omnipresent in trans lives, especially among trans people of color. It never ceases to amaze me how many trans feminist writers omit this essential fact of trans existence. And of course, sexism also results in physical and sexual violence, discrimination, harassment, and denial of reproductive choice. But at least we've got some stats over a very long period of time to give us a picture of that oppression. Trans people have only recently begun to appear in those kinds of stats. So what does combining data and transfeminism look like? The first of my surveys was in Washington, D.C., with the WITNESS study, WTNAS, from 1998 to 2000, followed by the Virginia Transgender Health Information Study, or this, from 2003 to 2006. And currently, I'm working with the Virginia TGNC survey, TGNC meaning trans and gender nonconforming, but we decided to call it this great new community survey. In my career, I've focused on these types of needs assessment surveys to fill the gaps of missing trans-specific data on health outcomes, access to routine health care, trans health care, and HIV primary care, sexual and physical violence, discrimination, HIV, risk behaviors, testing, mental health, substance use, and social support. In this um, TGNC survey, We're also looking at social media use and reproductive health and family planning and COVID-19. From the data we've collected, we can identify the gaps in healthcare and the need for trans-specific programs and training of healthcare and social service providers. Most importantly, we can identify health disparities, which is a major focus of progressive public health. When we compare similar outcome measures with cisgender people. The final reports of these surveys become advocacy tools to get funding for our programs, to get trans people hired, to get providers trained, because all levels of government run on data. And since these surveys must bring in a diverse representation of trans people in order to succeed, Conversations between trans people, formerly divided by race, class, and gender spectra, 
happen for the first time. These surveys can literally build trans communities. I asked Jessica if the data had ever surprised her. In the current survey, I can give you an answer. In the TGNC survey, I am somewhat surprised that the majority of our participants are non-binary. 43%. 43%. And uh, 27% are trans femme and 26% are trans mask. So, and this has been kind of evinced by some of the other national data. Non-binary people are emerging in amazing numbers. And I, I believe that they are going to become the future of gender difference. Okay. In, in culture. Yeah. I mean, like I've certainly seen a lot of, I mean, obviously non-scientific data here, but like a lot of celebrities coming out as non-binary. Um, so that's, mm -hmm. it's, it definitely seems um, much more openly talked about and a more accepted identity than it was previously. Some celebrities that identify as non-binary include Emma Corrin from The Crown, Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye, Bella Ramsey from Game of Thrones and Last of Us, and musicians such as Janelle Monet and Sam Smith, among many others. Binary thinking generally kind of really messes people up. I mean, look at how messed up Congress is. We've got two political parties, right? Um, but other things, you know, if we're just going to talk about uh, race and just talk white and black, well, what about Latino, Indigenous and uh, Native Hawaiian and, Amer and Asian Pacific Islanders. And if we think about um, uh, snappy answers, yes or no, well, that's, oh, quite often is the answer is it depends. I mean, so if you have these this kind of narrow kind of thinking based on a binary logic system, then, you know, it's going to compromise whatever critical thinking skills that you have. There's always a third way and sometimes a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth ways. So uh, binary thinking is <laughs> the bane <laughs> of our existence in, some, in many ways in the way we think about culture and society. Jessica's road has been hard. And although she's grown from it, sometimes the stress did get to her. Well, despite my bad reputation from the 1990s, uh, I would like to say that I've learned from those lessons and have changed a great deal. I'm much kinder now than I was back then. But back then, I was under a tremendous amount of stress from openly advocating for transgender people. Um, you had to have a strong personality to do that work back in the 90s. And it wasn't from the safety of a glare of a monitor from a keyboard. It was out. In many different meetings, many different venues, many different audiences. So I'm sorry for all of that, but I'm a much kinder, nicer person now and, uh, and happier. And that's Jessica's story. Although, of course, we will be hearing much more from her later in the season. Our next guest is Belinda, who, like Jessica, doesn't do the majority of her activism in the streets protesting, but instead she works from within the system. 
As always, thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions about future guests, topics, or any questions for us, you can reach us at, at lifeisforthel on Twitter and Instagram, or email us at lifeisforthelivingpodcast at gmail.com. The Life is for the Living podcast is written by me, Rebecca Richmond, and produced by Marco Berlow.